Um, if you go from right outside this building out to the stop sign where the highway is, turn left and go up the hill till you can't breathe anymore, and then turn around and go down the hill past the entrance to the camp until you throw your hands up in the air and say it's just not worth it, and then come back here, that's exactly 1,415 steps. <laughs> so if you're keeping track, I have one of those little McDonald's things you put on your, on your belt. I just thought I'd be helpful to any of you. So there's, there's your announcement. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in the seventh chapter. And we're going to read from verse 21 through chapter 8 and verse 1. Actually, chapter 8, verse 2. We just have to pick an arbitrary place because there just isn't any good place. It's almost like Hebrews is one unbroken chapter. And every place that they start starts with therefore and wherefore and all that type of thing. So we're just going to arbitrarily start in verse 21. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But He, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. And if any of you wonder, I'm reading from the New King James Version. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives, or the old King James says, He ever liveth, or He eternally exists to make intercession for them. Now that's going to be the verse that we focus most of our attention on, verse 25. Some incredible truths to be had there, and I hope in our time this morning we can absorb them and fathom them, even at a very minuscule level, and that that will elevate our appreciation for this great high priest, Greatly, The message of all of Hebrews is that Christ is a greater high priest than anyone who came before Him. Had we read prior to this passage in chapter 7 and verses 11 to 19, we would have seen 
the need for a new priesthood. The old one was imperfect and it was mortal. And then verses 20 to 28 tell of the greatness of this new high priest. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. The passage describes Christ in very lofty terms. In verses 21 and 24, He is an eternal high priest. In verse 24, He's an unchangeable high priest. In verse 25, He is an effective high priest. In verse 25, He is a perpetual high priest. In verses 26 and 28, He is a perfect high priest. And in verses 27 and 28, He's an all-sufficient high priest. Now, that would look good on anybody's resume, even Jesus's. But again, the key verse for our purposes is verse 25, which tells us that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So, the priestly work of Christ then is that of an ongoing, continual, perpetual, eternal intercession by Christ on behalf of His people. Now, Christ is not your typical high priest because this one, according to chapter 8 and verse 1, is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I think that's a lovely term for God. The majesty on high. And for a little context, it would be helpful and important to know what the offices and duties of the priest were, and they were two. The first was to offer the sacrifice. And then the second was to present it in the Holy of Holies, with prayer and intercession to God to accept it for the sins of the people. The first was done outside the Holy of Holies. The second one was done inside. And you can read all of that this afternoon while you've got free time in Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 13. And by the way, there is a sign-up over there for a group nap for anybody in my age group. (coughs) The priest was not to come into the Holy of Holies until he'd offered a sacrifice first for himself and then for the people, and this was done outside. And then when he'd killed the sacrifice, he was to take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the mercy seat with it. And I love the fact that it's called the mercy seat and not the judgment seat and not the condemnation seat. It is the mercy seat. And that was to go with the incense, and that caused a cloud to arise over the mercy seat. And all of that is simply a type of Christ's sacrifice, which is most needful for us to have. Now, in Christ's priesthood, which is infinitely greater than the Levitical priesthood, He first offered Himself as a sacrifice unto death. We're told that in Hebrews 9.26, which answers to the killing of the sacrifice. Although it's interesting that the Old Testament sacrifice, this was something that was done unto it. Christ offered Himself. He was no victim. In fact, He offered Himself in the covenant of redemption to God to do this, to save a people that God would have for Himself. One of the books I just finished editing was by the Anglican. We we call him a Puritan because of his theology, James Usher, who some of you uh, know the name Usher because he is the one who did all the dating in the old Schofield Bible and uh, as the dates of this, that, and everything else. But we have a book of sermons coming out by him probably in 2005 or 6, where he contends that the pain that Christ suffered most 
was what he did to himself. He says, sinful men punished him, God punished him, but Christ offered himself and increased his own punishment by being a willing sacrifice to it all. And that's what we have here. He offered himself a sacrifice, and then he was crucified outside the city. Second, he carried the blood of the sacrifice, his own blood, into the heavens, according to Hebrews 9.12, where he appears and he prays in the strength and the efficacy of that shed blood. It was not spilt blood. There where the lamb of the blood of the blood of the lamb was spilt is not biblical theology, but it doesn't rhyme when you say there where the blood of the lamb was shed. That is biblical theology. He said, No man takes my life from me, I lay it down. And now that he's in heaven, and he's fulfilled all the priestly duties required for him to be there, his work for all time now is to intercede for us before the throne of the majesty on high, where the sacrifice of his person and the shedding of his blood are forever the answer to the question, why should this person have standing as one of God's children. The finished work of Christ is eternally the answer to that question. I'm, as you probably already can tell, somewhat of a movie buff. I enjoy going to the movies, uh, particularly if they're historical. And uh, the only other kind I like is those with a high body count, uh, where I vicariously get even with all my high school enemies by watching them die over and over on the screen. But I do like the historical ones. Uh, I like the ones that came out about the Civil War. There was Gettysburg, which I thought was quite good. And uh, probably at equal favorite is the movie Glory, about the 54th Massachusetts with Robert Gould Shaw, where he was put in charge of the first all-black regiment in the Union Army in the assault on Fort Wagner, which was right outside Charleston Harbor. And before they attack the fort, he turns to face his troops and he points to the man holding the colors and he asks this question, if this man should fall, who will carry the colors into the fort? And at that point, one of his miscreant soldiers who had shot himself in the foot and was always looking down the barrel of a gun to see if there was a bullet in it, steps forward and he puffs out his chest and he pronounces, I will. And at that point, all the troops behind him begin cheering. The, the analogy stops there because those people all got slaughtered. But if I can use the analogy here, we're in a courtroom. And we have a prosecuting attorney, which is Satan. That's what the Scripture calls him. The accuser of the brethren. And he is continually accusing and condemning the brethren before the great judge, of all the earth, who is God? And he keeps asking this question. Who would dare to accept such a vile, wicked, reprobate sinner as this with all of his transgressions, with all of his lies, with all of his failures, with all of his corruptions? And it's at that point that our defense attorney, or what the Scripture calls our advocate, stands up from his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he declares, I will. And that is what is going on in the courtroom of heaven 24-7. 
It is there that the intercession takes place. And Christ answers all of Satan's accusations and condemnations by showing that He, Christ, has fulfilled all righteousness, that He has offered Himself to God once and for all as an acceptable sacrifice, and He now presents that sacrifice to the God who was offended, but who has declared in Scripture for all time and eternity that He is satisfied. That is what He says in Isaiah, that God will look upon Christ, He will see the result of the anguish of His soul, and be satisfied. And the only way a true believer in Jesus Christ could ever lose salvation was if God, after all these years, decided He was no longer satisfied with the atoning work of Christ, which has satisfied Him for years. But if He were to become dissatisfied now, He would no longer be immutable and He would no longer be God. I keep finding it impressive to me how true it is that you can't fool with one attribute of God without de-godding all of God and that God has much more at stake in your salvation and mine than we do. And just to make sure that there's no doubt in anyone's mind, including this wicked prosecuting attorney, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, this eternal, unchangeable, effective, perpetual, perfect, and all-sufficient high priest, is not said to barely save, nor does He tell us that He struggles to save, but rather we are told in no uncertain terms that this high priest is able to save, and He's able to save to the uttermost. Who does He save? All who come to God through Him. And that's reminiscent of Psalm 130, verse 7, that says, with Him is plenteous redemption. Now, I do get a little bit of uh, humor out of this courtroom scene because the Romanists are telling us that this is not a legal matter, it's a familial matter. They say that this is not forensic justification, but how do you get away from the fact that all of this is always going on in a courtroom? God is a judge. That's a forensic legal matter. Satan is a prosecuting attorney. Christ is our advocate, the defense attorney. We are judged to be guilty and we are condemned. And they have the nerve and the audacity to say this isn't a legal matter. But I love this courtroom because when you go into any courtroom, and that's why when we published our book with MacArthur and Sproul and the others, Justification by Faith Alone, we put a judge's bench on the cover. Because it is a legal matter. But if you go into any courtroom, you see there's the judge's bench, and there's the bench for the prosecuting attorney, and there's the uh, defense attorney sitting over here. But in this courtroom, you go into God's courtroom, and God is on the bench, and the prosecuting attorney is over here, but the defense attorney is sitting right next to the judge, and he keeps calling him Dad. Now, I would think that's a stacked deck in any courtroom particularly when the defense attorney has already said, whatever I ask the Father, He will give me. And Satan, this is one of the reasons why Jonathan Edwards calls Satan the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. He said, because he goes ahead and he prosecutes the case anyway, 
when the defense attorney calls the judge dad and says, he always gives me what I want. Now we have to look at what this passage says and what it doesn't say by what it does say. This passage only speaks of what happens to those who come to God through Christ. There is no salvation spoken of to anyone who comes to God outside of Christ or apart from Christ. He is only able to save those who come to God through Christ for this very simple reason. It is for them alone that He makes intercession. No intercession, no eternal salvation. Now, people want to squabble and argue over the fact, is this a limited or a definite atonement? And whether you can convince them of that or not, they can't get away from this. This is a limited intercession. He only intercedes for those who come to God through Him, through Christ. And He doesn't intercede for anybody else. Christ is able to save those people to the uttermost. And by the way, don't be surprised if before this current Pope dies, he answers the requests of hundreds and hundreds of cardinals and bishops to declare Mary a co-redemptrix. There are churches in South America where they have crosses outside the church and Jesus is on one side of the cross and Mary is on the other side of the cross. And Mary is a co-redemptrix, is a strong movement in the Roman church. Mariolatry is flourishing like it seldom if ever has. And this Pope is uh, very, very favorable to that. And you know, once he declares it to be so, it becomes something the Roman church has always believed. That's the way they work. No matter at what point in history a Pope declares something to be true, by a papal bull, which I think is God's sense of humor in using those words, once the Pope says that and puts it in writing and speaks ex cathedra out of his office, it's the same as saying the Roman Church has always believed this. And this is what will happen before this current Pope dies. The Christ only saves to the uttermost Those who come to God through Him. Now the word in the Greek is emphatic. It means saving us wholly, with a W at the beginning, thoroughly, completely, and altogether. The word is pantales, and in other places, and in extra-biblical literature, it's translated as completing all, effecting all, fully effective, all-powerful, intact, unblemished, absolute, forever, and permanently. Does that portray it enough for you? Or we might say it this way concerning Christ as John Owen did, the one who saves forever is the same one who saves altogether. And we could lay it out by means of alliteration using the letter P. And since this microphone is especially sensitive, you're going to hear all kinds of pops on the tape because of all these P's. We have the person, He, Christ. Then there is the power, is able. And then the program, to save. And the parameters, to the uttermost. And the parties involved, those who come to God. And the path, through Him. 
And just for good measure, the writer of Hebrews gives us the principal cause. Since he always lives or ever liveth to make intercession for them. And in that one phrase, you have Christ, you have power, you have salvation, you have grace and mercy, you have sovereignty, you have the way, you have hope, and you have assurance. And that's why I say we do ourselves a disservice by reading through Scripture passages like that too quickly without plumbing the depths. Let's examine each one of those P's and each of its parts. First of all, He is able. The old priesthood was defective and imperfect. The priests of old needed partners because one man couldn't do all the work. That's where we got the whole system of elders when Moses went to his father and said, this is too much work for one man. I need help. And he says, pick out 70 men and on and on and on. So they needed help with the work because it was too much work for one man. And they needed successors because none of them lived forever. The old priesthood had this one flaw. They kept dying. John MacArthur tells of how he came to pastor Grace Community Church up in the Los Angeles area. This had actually been a group Bible study, a family Bible study of families that had been members of United Presbyterian and United Methodist churches. There's your unholy alliance, if there ever was one. And they wanted to have their own non-denominational church. They thought the denominational bit was keeping local folks from coming. Well, they didn't have much money, so they hired a retired man who didn't need much money. Well, unfortunately, because of his age and health within a year, he had a heart attack and died. Well, they still were in the same boat financially, so they hired another man in the same position, and in a year he had a heart attack and died. And so John says when they came to him, they said, we don't even care if you're any good, are you healthy? I was telling some of the folks at uh, the meal last night about a church that I used to do pulpit supply in in western Pennsylvania, and it turned out the reason they were without a pastor, their service had been this way, that the pastor would preach, and he was an elderly man, and then he would uh, finish his sermon and pray, and then he would go sit down in the chair behind the pulpit, and he would close his eyes, and the organ would play, and he wanted his people to meditate on what he had said for a few minutes. And so he would put his head down like this. Well, one Sunday he preached, and he prayed, and then he went and sat down, and the organ was playing, and he put his head down. And five minutes went by, and... Ten minutes went by, and people were starting to look up at him like this. Boy, he must have really been affected. After 20 minutes, they thought they better. he died. He'd sat down after his sermon and went to heaven. That's a perfect way to go for a preacher before they come up at you to the back door and tell you everything that was wrong with your sermon. <laughs> well, this is what happened to the Levitical priesthood. They would die, and they'd always have to get another one. But you see, Christ doesn't need a partner. Because He is all-sufficient. And He doesn't need a successor because He ever lives. That's why Christ is the perfect high priest. And as our perfect high priest, He removes whatever is an impediment to our salvation. It's the whole message of Ezekiel 36 in the New Covenant. It says, I will cut out your old stony heart and give you a new heart 
and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So he promises and then he supplies whatever is required to make our happiness and salvation complete, and that to the uttermost. So he is able. But the second thing, and it really isn't in the text, but it's important, he is willing. It's one thing to be able, but unless Christ is willing, we're still lost. Is he willing? Yes. Because if he weren't willing, he wouldn't intercede. Christ would never and will never do anything that He doesn't want to do. But because He lives to do the will of His Father, He will always do exactly what He wants to do, which is to be pleasing to God. That's really the discussion that Edwards enters into in his classic work, The Freedom of the Will, that we always do what seems good to us, You're here because it was the best thing you could think of to do, which gives me an idea of the life you live. And the children are saying, well, I'm not here because I wanted to be here. Yes, you were presented with all kinds of options, and this was the least painful of the bunch. Sure, you can stay home. I want the lawn mowed. I want the oil changed in the car. I want you to take all the laundry down, iron your mother's clothes, iron all your dad's shirts, I want you to do this. I want you to hoe the weed. All right, all right. I want to go to camp. Even if that's the way it turns out, you're here because you chose to be here. You never do anything you don't want to do because you must will to do it before you do it. So when people say, does God make us do anything? No, He changes our hearts so that we do what we want to do. But what we want to do is then different. You're... Not a one of you is here against your will. You do what seems good to you. There's a tendency to adopt either a nonsensical idea of total autonomy or complete fatalism. And neither of those is biblical. You can always choose to do anything that's within the realm of possibilities. You can't choose to be a goat because that's not possible. Although you may be a goat at different times in your life, but that's a different thing. If you don't mind me telling this little anecdote, I was invited to Birmingham, Alabama to preach at a Presbyterian church there. And before the church, the man says, I have a friend who's a pastor of another church. Would you mind going to teach Sunday school? I said, no, not at all. I'm out. I'll preach a holic. I'll go whenever and wherever. And so we pull up, and it's a United Methodist Church. And I said, what was it you wanted me to speak on here? He says, the issue of the will of man, is it free or not? I said, oh, this is the lion's den and my name is Daniel. So we go in and I start giving the biblical argument for that man's will is not free because he who sins is the slave of sin. That we freely choose to sin as much as we want, but we don't have the freedom to not be sinners because we're born that way and because we have an inclination that way. Well, halfway through the presentation, a woman stands up and says, I don't accept the Bible as the rule of anything. I don't think it's without errors, and I reject your argument. And if you can't prove your point based on something other than the Bible, you haven't convinced me of anything. Okay. Madam, may I ask what you do for a living? She says, I'm an attorney. Okay. I said, is the gentleman next to you your husband? He said, yes, it is. I said, may I ask him a question? That was my dig. She said, yes, you may. I said, sir, 
You're a married man. He said, yes. I says, can you do anything you want anytime you want without restraints? And he says, of course not. I'm married. And I said, there, I have proved my point. Marriage proves there is no such thing as a totally free will. And she accepted it and sat down and was quiet the rest of the time. <laughs> One of those times where God takes over and gets you out of a tough spot, you know. You always do good. See, we do what seems good to you because you seek your self-interest in all that you do. But Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. That is how Jesus always behaved. He was willing and He was able. He was willing, we know, because of the covenant of redemption. And He was able because God made Him an all-sufficient Savior. But if all we had was half of either one of that part of that equation, we'd be still damned. If Christ was willing and not able, that couldn't help us. And if He was able but not willing, it wouldn't help us. He had to be willing and able. And He is able to save. He is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And He's never yet lost a case. For you folks my age or above, that's better than Perry Mason. For you folks younger than me, that's better than Matlock or better than L.A. Law, or better than uh, whoever the current law show is. Christ intercedes for us with the Father, who grants the Son whatever He requests. Christ's pleas are grounded on the satisfaction that He has merited with the Father by virtue of the merits of the sacrifice of Himself. God has declared Himself to be satisfied. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. He's done it, as Hebrews tells us, once for all, so nothing needs to be added to it, and nothing could be taken away from it, or you couldn't call it salvation to the uttermost, and you couldn't call it eternal life if anything could be taken away from it. I mean, if anything, the Arminians ought to be sued for false advertising. When they give an invitation and tell people to come forward and receive Jesus Christ and get eternal, temporary life. What is eternal life that could be lost? Words have to mean something, right? How could it be eternal if you could lose it? How could it be never-ending if it could end? They ought to have to bone up to the truth of what they're offering. Come forward and receive temporary salvation until the next time you make a mistake. And then we start from scratch. But who's going to come forward for that? But that at least would be truthfulness. Fourthly, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Now when Aaron the high priest was to enter the most holy place to intercede for the people, he was to bear the names of the twelve tribes on his breast and on his shoulders. You can see that in Exodus 28-29. He wasn't interceding with God for himself alone, but for the people of God. But when Christ appears before God... He doesn't appear with the names of the twelve tribes, but with the name of each individual person for whom He died. He died to make satisfaction, and He lives to make intercession. Every moment of every day, He appears before God to state our case and plead our cause, and when He does so, He puts us before God in the most favorable and advantageous light that His obedience and sufferings will permit. Let me say it this way. When Christ presents you before God, you've never looked better. 
Jeremiah Burroughs, and we'll look at this uh, later in the week, said that under the Old Covenant, no excuses were allowed. Under the New Covenant, no excuses are necessary. Because if there's any excuse to be made, Christ will find it and will take it to God for you. Christ can't miscarry. He can't fail unless His obedience and death become imperfect and unsatisfactory. But again, that would mean that God would have to change His standards, which would mean that God is not immutable, but God can't change. And so Christ can't fail. And if Christ can't fail and you're in Him, you can't fail because He has suffered once for all. One of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture is where Paul says that Christ, God always leads us in His triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of Himself in every place. Here's another one of those divine always statements. The setting was this. Paul had gone to Troas to preach the Gospel, he says. And he says, when I got there, the door was wide open. So now if you're a member of the Open Door Theology group, this would be a tough spot for you to be in. But then he says this, but I couldn't find Troas my brother... And so I left. Now, he doesn't tell us why he left. We don't have any idea of what it was about Paul, uh, Titus not being there that was a problem for Paul, but whatever it was, he left. And then he says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph. In other words, Paul's allowing for the fact maybe it was a bad decision. Maybe I should have stayed and gone through this open door and preached the Gospel. But even if I messed it all up, God always leads us in His triumph. And then I love this one because sometimes we as Christians are so prone to think that we stink the place up. He says He always manifests through us the sweet aroma of Himself in every place. Isn't that good to know? That you and I don't stink the place up. That because of what Christ does and what He has done, you know, you see that little thing, WWJD, I always thought it stood for who wants jelly donuts, but it was what would Jesus do. It's not what would Jesus do so important is what has Jesus done. That's what's important. But because of what He has done, we never fail. And we never stink it up. Because God manifests the sweet aroma of Himself through us in every place. I'm not doing anything. I don't know what that is. His intercession is founded on His merit, and therefore it must prevail with a God of justice because His death merits with God the very things for which He pleads on our behalf. And there's absolutely no chance of Christ's pleas being rejected by God. Now this salvation is to the uttermost. And that is so important. That should be of great comfort. Because the devil will often accuse us, and he, and he typically does it in the same ways. He may change the wording a little bit to get through to us, but it almost always goes like this. You are a great sinner. Richard Sibbs, one of the early Puritans in his classic work, The Bruised Reed and the Smoking Flax, has an imaginary conversation between the devil and a weak believer. And he says, that's what the devil will say. You are a great sinner. And he says, here is what we should say back. Yes, but Christ is a greater Savior. 
But you have much sin. Yes. But Christ has more mercy. And that is what it means to be saved to the uttermost. That Christ is a better Savior than you are a sinner. You know, if that weren't true, we wouldn't have any hope. Christ is better at doing what He does best, saving and showing mercy, than you and I are at what we do best, sinning and dishonoring Him. You know, we sang that hymn uh, opening exercises last night, and I think sometimes there, we should change the tune to match the theology better. What can wash away my sin? Nothing! And then there should be a long pause, but the blood of Jesus. That's so reminiscent of what R.C. Sproul calls with Paul the apostolic but. Says Paul keeps painting us into the worst possible corner and almost taking us to the point of despair. And then he says this, but God. You see, that's always the reason that any of us have any hope. But God. But God. I'm a wicked sinner. But God. We place all of our hope in that word. Those two words, but God. The Scripture nowhere tells us, for example, that we are able to sin to the uttermost. But it does tell us that Christ saves to the uttermost. I mean, when we want to sin, we're restrained by all kinds of factors. Say that your sin is gluttony. You can only eat so much before you'll explode. Or before you get sick and throw it all up and you start all over again. You can only drive your car so fast before it goes off the road and hits something. You know, they talked about free love back in the 60s. It didn't turn out to be all that free. You can't be all the sinner that you want to be. Whether it's because of fear of consequence, whether it's because of a lack of opportunity, no matter what the restraint is, You've never once been all the sinner you could be. You say, well, what kind of a Calvinist are you? You don't believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Yeah, total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. With people like us, there's always room for deprovement. It just means that sin has affected every area of our life and that every aspect of our being is affected by sin. But if you don't think man can get any worse, well, that's good for you because that tells me you've never watched Jerry Springer or Howard Stern. And I'm not recommending that you watch Jerry Springer or Howard Stern to learn the lesson. Just read the newspaper. That's bad enough. You've never yet... This is, by the way, this isn't a pep rally, so you'll try harder either. I want to be all the sinner that I could be. No, 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 no. But it does mean that no matter how bad a sinner you are, that is no restraint to God saving you. No matter how sinful a man or a woman is, the depths of your sin can never begin to approach the height of Christ's saving work. There, Christopher Love said it this way, there is not so much heinousness in sin to damn and destroy us as there is mercy and grace in Christ to save us. 
We sing that hymn. That it is grace that is greater than all our sin. It also happens to be grace that will pardon and cleanse within. It is not just a pardoning grace. It is a sanctifying grace. Or you could think of it this way. Think of the biblical illustrations. Scripture tells us that sinners drink iniquity like water. But that is just a drink. Scripture says that out of Christ will flow rivers of living water and that He is a fountain of life. You see the difference in the analogies? And we are bathed in that fountain. And we are drenched in those waters. We are wonderfully drowning in the sea of God's mercy. And we should never insult Christ in His finished work by doubting the extent of it. I mean, it would have been miraculous enough if His death were able to save one person. But He saves thousands upon thousands, and He saves each and every one of them to the uttermost. We can't even comprehend that. And it's to our detriment that we don't spend more time trying to do that. Because the Scripture not only saves to the uttermost, tells us that He saves to the uttermost, but to every degree of perfection imaginable. And the Scripture tells us that Christ is able to do exceeding abundant above all that we can ask or think. You have no idea how much you've been saved. That's one of the reasons why the Puritans often preached on hell because they believed that people needed to know what it is they'd been saved from. Paul tells us in Romans that when God wants to show the people in heaven how much He loves them, He will show them their enemies being tormented in hell. And that you will have a greater appreciation of God's love for you when you see what He saved you from. But if we reduce salvation to a psychological mind cure, we diminish what Christ has done. Because Christ didn't come to save you from a bad self-image. He came to save you. The Scripture says there's only two things that He came to save us from. Sin and the wrath to come. And it is important to know that Jesus preached on hell and judgment more than any other single topic. And if He did, why don't we ministers? What did He know that we don't? When we think that we understand the extent to which we've been saved, we know virtually little or nothing. Because it's beyond anything we can ask or think. And He doesn't just save a few. To the uttermost, He saves all who come to God through Him. Wouldn't it be a tragic arrangement to have someone come to God through Christ only to hear this, I'm sorry. But the last guy got all the efficacy of Christ's blood that was left. But that's not what happens. Rather, Christ says, He who comes to Me, I will in no wise cast out. I mean, He multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed thousands, and He can multiply if He needs to, which He doesn't, the efficacy of His shed blood so that thousands upon thousands can find salvation to the uttermost. You see, His salvation like His priesthood, is eternal and unchangeable and it is effective and it is perpetual 
And it is perfect. And it is all sufficient for sinners just like we are. And only that kind of a Savior could ever offer that kind of a salvation. And the words that he uses there in Hebrews, that he ever lives to make intercession, is where we find all of our security. Because as long as Christ lives, we're safe. And that's why we ought to sing. Safe. Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And since He ever lives to make intercession, we will ever live with Him in glory, without blemish and without fear. Christ is our great high priest, and He saves to the uttermost. And praise God for a salvation like that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You even more for this great plan of salvation And that it does not depend on us, but it depends upon You. We thank You for a new covenant that is not do this and you shall live, but that because of what I have done, you shall live. And may our response be one of ongoing gratitude that You would call sinners like us to a salvation like that. And that You have more mercy than we have sin and that you're a greater Savior than we are sinners. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.